Welcome to the Harmony Christian Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by today's message from Pastor Josh Shoemaker. All right, Luke chapter 2. We're going to actually end the year how we started. So uh, some of you may remember this from the beginning of the year. This is the same passage we uh, started the year 2023 off with. So Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21. I'm going to read for a little while, so stick with me this morning. I know we have a late night for most of you tonight, so uh, this is not the time to take the nap, okay, to get ready for tonight. So if you do, I'm calling you out this morning. All right, um, Luke chapter 2, verse 21. On the day of the baby circumcision ceremony, this is talking about the baby Jesus, eighth, uh, eight days after his birth, his parents gave him the name Jesus, the name prophesied by the angel before he was born. After Mary's days of purification had ended, it was time for her to come to the temple with a sacrifice, according to the law of Moses, after the birth of a son. So Mary and Joseph took the baby Jesus to Jerusalem to be dedicated before the Lord, for it was required in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be set apart, a set-apart one for God, and to offer a prescribed sacrifice either a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. As they came to the temple to fulfill this requirement, an elderly man was there waiting, a resident of Jerusalem, whose name was Simeon. He was a very good man, a lover of God, who kept his, himself pure, and the spirit of holiness rested upon him. Simeon believed in the imminent appearing of the one called the refreshing of Israel, for the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not see death before he saw the Messiah, the anointed one of God. For this reason, the Holy Spirit had moved him to be in the temple court at the very moment Jesus' parents entered to fulfill the requirement of the sacrifice. Simeon cradled the baby in his arms and praised God and prophesied, saying, Lord and Master, I am your loving servant. And now I can die content, for your promise to me has been fulfilled. With my own eyes I have seen your word, the Savior you sit into the world. He will be the glory for your people Israel and the revelation light for all people everywhere. Mary and Joseph stood there, awestruck, over what was being said about their baby. Simeon then blessed them and prophesied over Mary, saying, A painful sword will one day pierce your inner being, for your child will be rejected by many in Israel. And the destiny of your child is this, he will be laid down as a miracle sign for the downfall and resurrection of many in Israel. Many will oppose this sign, but it will expose to all the innermost thoughts of their hearts before God. What a prophecy. A prophetess named Anna was there as well. They're also in the temple court that day. She was from the Jewish tribe of Asher and the daughter of Phanuel. Anna was an aged widow who had been married only seven years before her husband passed away. After he died, listen to this, she chose to worship God in the temple continually. For the past 84 years, she has been serving God 
with night and day prayer and fasting. While Simeon was prophesying over Mary and Joseph and the baby, Anna walked up to them and burst forth with, great cor- with a great course of praise to God for the child. And from that day forward, she told everyone in Jerusalem who was waiting for their redemption that the anticipated Messiah had come. When Mary and Joseph had completed everything required of them by the law of Moses, they took Jesus and returned to their home in Nazareth in Galilee. The child grew more powerful in grace, for he was being filled with wisdom and favor of God. The favor of God was upon him. Father, we welcome your presence here. We welcome your word this morning, Jesus. Our one desire is to hear your voice. In Jesus' name. This story is amazing for many, many reasons. So many that we don't have time today to hit every bullet point and every little nuance in this passage. But there's one thing here that is significant that I don't believe we can pass up. Something that is often missed if you're not looking for it. And to understand this, you have to understand a little bit of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was signified by the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant would go with the Israelites wherever it was carried with them, uh, wherever they went. It even went with them in battle often. But the Ark of the Covenant found its home in Solomon's temple. In Solomon's temple, the Ark became the centerpiece of the magnificent temple that was built. The, Solomon's temple is said to have been, or thought to have been, one of the most beautiful buildings ever built. I mean, we're talking things covered in gold and fine, uh, fine fabrics, and there was no expense um, withheld when building Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was built from the wealth of David's kingdom. It was magnificent. It was beautiful. Again, historians say that there has not been a building since to match Solomon's temple and all of its beauty. And the centerpiece, the highlight of the building was the Ark of the Covenant, which resided in the Holy of Holies, this inner sanctuary of the temple that only the high priest could enter into. In 586 BC, something happened to Solomon's temple. King Nebuchadnezzar, and yes, this is the Nebuchadnezzar that captive, uh, held captive the Israelites and held captive Daniel and that whole story. This Nebuchadnezzar came in 586 BC took captive all of Israel and took them to Babylon. And then he went on to then destroy Solomon's temple and cause this beautiful, magnificent building to be turned into rubble. At that moment, the Ark of the Covenant disappears. 
There's no mention of it after that in scripture. We don't know if it was destroyed with the temple. We don't know if maybe Babylon took it and later on Indiana Jones finds it. We don't know. But we know this, that the Ark of the Covenant from that moment, the thing that represented the presence of God went missing. For 70 years, Babylon held Israel in captivity until finally they were released and they went back to their homeland. And guess what the first thing they did was? They built a house, a resting place, a new temple to worship in. Now the thing about this temple is, is they just had 70 years of bondage. They didn't have a kingdom like David's kingdom to finance their project. So this temple was not nearly as elegant, not nearly as large, not nearly as beautiful as Solomon's temple. Not only that, it lacked its centerpiece, which was the Ark of the Covenant. Yet in Haggai chapter 2, verse 6 through 9, it says this about this particular temple. It says, the glory of the latter will be greater than the former. In fact, let's go ahead and just read that verse with me this morning in Haggai chapter two. If you get to Haggai quickly, then I applaud you because it's really small and hard to find. But Haggai chapter two, it's, it's, it's page 650 in your Bibles. Haggai chapter two, starting in verse six, it says, for thus says the Lord of hosts once more in a little while, I love how scripture says that. In a little while. Do you realize this prophecy was hundreds of years before a little while came to pass? The Lord is coming soon, right? It's been 2,000 years and it's coming soon. But in a little while, I will shake heaven and earth and the sea and dry land. Listen to the language. Listen to how dramatic this scene is. I will shake heaven and earth and the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. I love that. I love that name of God, the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. So here you have a temple that doesn't come close to matching the glory and elegance of Solomon's temple. It doesn't even have the centerpiece of the Ark of the Covenant. Yet Haggai tells us that the glory of this house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And you have to ask yourself, why? How, Haggai, will this house be greater? Solomon's house, when they dedicated it, you, you should go back and read that in scripture. It's amazing. There's celebration and there's, there's, there's praise, there's instruments. The whole city comes out to celebrate it. And then a cloud of glory, the Bible says, comes and fills the entire city. When this temple was dedicated, it tells us that there was mourning. That one group of people celebrated and another group of people mourned when this temple was dedicated. Why? Because they, the half that mourned had experienced the glory of Solomon's temple and they didn't see how this temple could compare in glory. 
But Haggai says, the glory of this temple is going to be greater than the former. How? Why? Because this temple, the last temple hosted the Ark of the Covenant. But this temple will host the Son of God himself. The desire of all nations will suddenly come in to his house. And any glory that was experienced in Solomon's temple will not compare to the glory of the Son of God coming into his house. And if you're not careful in this story of of Mary and Joseph coming to the temple, you miss something extremely significant. Because this is the moment Haggai prophesied. That the ark had been missing for hundreds of years. The presence of God was absent from the temple for hundreds of years. The people were waiting for hundreds of years for the prophecy of Haggai to be fulfilled, that this glorious, or that the glory of this temple would be greater. And on that day, Mary and Joseph walk into the temple with the Son of God in his arms, their arms. And all of a sudden, the temple that was absent of presence is filled with his presence. What an incredible, incredible moment when Mary and Joseph step into the temple. And isn't it, isn't it just like Yahweh that the glory of the presence of God returning to the temple after hundreds of years comes in the form of a baby being carried by a young mom and a carpenter. And the moment goes almost completely unnoticed by anybody. Don't ever underestimate the little moments with God. Don't underestimate the seemingly insignificant moments with God, the quiet moments with him. For oftentimes, the little moments with him are the big ones. No moment with him is insignificant, even the ones that seem small. So Mary and Joseph, they bring baby Jesus into the temple. They walk past the teachers standing on the porch, preaching to the people and teaching the people. And the teachers didn't recognize him. They walk past, or they walk up to the priest that does the inspection of the sacrifice of the pigeons or the doves that were brought for the sacrifice. They walk up to the priest and the priest does the inspection all the while baby Jesus is in Mary's arms. And the priest that does the inspection doesn't recognize the Son of God. Then they go to the priest who performs the sacrifice, and they do the ritual, they do the sacrifice, and the entire time the priest who does the sacrifice doesn't recognize who Mary is holding in her arms. These men who study the law 
not just the law, they study the messianic prophecies. They know all of the prophecies ever written about the Son of God. And every single one of them misses Jesus coming into his temple. Why did they miss Jesus? How did they miss the one that they've been waiting for for hundreds of years? They missed Jesus because for them, his presence wasn't enough. A baby in a manger wasn't big enough. A humble young lady and a man from Jerusalem didn't seem like the likely or right parents to raise the Son of God. His first entrance into the temple did not seem Messiah-like. They wanted signs and wonders. Many times in Jesus' ministry, the religious leaders ask for Jesus to perform a sign and a wonder to demonstrate who he is. In Matthew chapter 12, they ask him for a sign. And just earlier that day, that same day they ask him for a sign, he heals a man with the withered hand. He casts a demon out of a man who is mute and deaf. And he had an impromptu healing, uh, healing service with a multitude of people who just began following him. And they ask him for a sign. How much more of a sign do you need? How much more proof do you need that he is who he says he is? But here's what they teach us in this moment. If his presence is not enough, if you, are, if you demand signs and wonders, if his presence is not enough, if you need signs and wonders from him to be satisfied, he can give you the entire world and you still would not be satisfied. He could give you everything you ask for and you still would not be satisfied if his presence is not already enough. So here's my challenge as we leave 2023. I should say my question as we leave 2023 and go into 2024. And it's the same question that I started this year off with. Is his presence enough? Is his presence enough? Or do we need his presence and a carefree life? Do we need his presence and a bigger house? His presence and more money? His presence and miracles? His presence and um, being able to fulfill our desires? Or it's just the fact that he lives in us and we live in him. Is that enough? Is that enough? Can we really say like David did in Psalms chapter 27? One thing have I desired of the Lord. One thing. Oh, sure, I have other, I have other wants, I have other even needs, but there's only one thing that I desire. 
There's one thing I desire to the Lord, and that one thing will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Can we really cry out, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere? I'd rather be a doorkeeper, the psalm says, in the house of the Lord than dwell in the finest palaces because his presence is enough. As I said earlier, this moment, the significant moment of Jesus, the presence of God filling the temple, goes almost completely unnoticed. The verse 25 tells us that there's a man named Simeon. Listen to this description of Simeon. He's an elderly man, a resident of Jerusalem, a very good man, a lover of God who kept himself pure, and the spirit of holiness was upon him. Verse 36 tells us of another person named Anna. And this is what it says about Anna, that she is a daughter of a man named Phanuel, a widow who was married only seven years before her husband died. And after her husband died, she chose to spend the rest of her life in the temple, praying and fasting night and day for 84 years. Simeon and Anna, who are not priests, they are not religious leaders. They are not anybody with any title of any significance. It's just res or ordinary residents of Jerusalem that loved God. And even though Jesus came in and walked right past the priests and the scribes and the elders, and none of them recognized him, these two ordinary citizens had the eyes to see who came into the temple that morning? They had eyes to see who came into the temple that morning. And not only that, they look at this baby who can't even walk, can't feed himself who is completely and utterly dependent upon his parents. And they say, the, uh, the rescuer of Israel is here. <laughs> they have eyes to not only see the Messiah, they have eyes to see what he will accomplish and declare that even though he's just a baby, that's what it says. It says salvation has come. Past tense. That just because he is there, the salvation of Israel has already come before he can do and say a single thing. His presence was enough for them. They didn't see Jesus perform one sign not one wonder and not one miracle. At least the shepherds 
had a host of angels, right? The Magi had a star. And Mary, she had an angel and a baby bump, right? <laughs> and she knows where baby bumps come from, right? And so she had that as a sign. That was a pretty in-your-face sign. But these two had none of that. None of that. They had no angel visit them. They had nobody tell them who this was. Yet they had eyes to see who he was. Why? Because they had a hunger for Jesus. They had a hunger to see Jesus. This, may, this next part, you're just going to have to stick with me because it's going to seem like I'm changing my message and I'm not here this morning, but I want you to see something here. In the book of Malachi, it's, Malachi is the last book of the Bible. In the book of Malachi, Malachi makes this statement at the end of the book. He says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Least I come and strike the earth with a curse. And then period. The book ends... And there's something that happens after the book of Malachi ends that we call the 400 years of silence. Now, the 400 years of silence, uh, it's called that because for 400 years after Malachi makes this last prophetic statement, there is no record of God speaking to any prophet or anyone else for 400 years. In fact, uh, from Malachi until, until um, the New Testament, the next time we hear anything about God speaking to mankind is when uh, Gabriel comes to Zechariah to prophesy the birth of John the Baptist. So for 400 years, there's this gap where it seems like God is not speaking, where it seems like God is not not speaking to his people. But then I realized something as I was reading this story. Simeon knew to be looking for the Messiah because in verse 26, it tells us that the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. So we have 400 years without a record of one prophetic utterance from a, prophet's, from a prophet. But here we have Simeon, just an ordinary resident of Jerusalem who loves God, who keeps himself pure, who hears from the Holy Spirit and is promised that he will see the Messiah with his own eyes before he dies. God was speaking God was speaking in those years, but he was not speaking to kings and prophets. He was speaking to the lovers of God. He was speaking to the lovers of God. He may not have been speaking to the masses, but he was speaking to those who were listening. Whew. Not only was he speaking to this lover of God named Simeon. But he gave Simeon the highest privilege. Simeon got to see the Messiah with his own eyes before the rest of the world even had a clue who he was. 
I want you to consider this thought. There was no other reason for God to speak to Simeon. There was no strategic plan that Simeon was to accomplish. There was no other reason for God to speak to Simeon before he died other than to fulfill the desire of Simeon's heart. Let me say that again since I botched it up. There was no strategic plan. If you read the scripture, obviously Simeon prophesies over, over Jesus, but there was no specific reason or there was nothing that telling Simeon did to promote Jesus or to do anything else. The only benefit was Simeon got the desire of his heart. This lover of God who kept himself pure, who had a desire to see Jesus, heard from the Holy Spirit that has been silent to the masses for 400 years. He heard from the Holy Spirit when the Messiah was going to be coming into his temple. And the only reason the Holy Spirit told him was because it was the desire of Simeon's heart to see him. I don't even know how to preach that other than to say the goodness of God. The goodness of God. The man just wanted to see Jesus. And God said, absolutely. Absolutely. Not only that, you'll be the first one and one of the only ones to see who he really is when he comes into his temple. Hallelujah. You have Simeon and Anna who recognize who Jesus is. The only other people in this story that know who Jesus is are Mary and Joseph, the holy family themselves. If you read in verse 39, it says, When Mary and Joseph had completed everything required of them by the law of Moses, they took Jesus and returned to their home in Nazareth of Galilee. The child grew more powerful in grace, for he was being filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. I love the simplicity of that statement. Mary and Joseph take Jesus home. They sit him at their table. They feed him. They clothe him. Joseph teaches him the art of carpentry. Simple. They just host Jesus in their house. Scripture doesn't tell us much that happens between his birth and when he began his ministry, except for in the next few verses, it actually tells us about the time when Jesus was 12 and Mary and Joseph misplaced the Son of God for three days. <laughs> Whoops. 
It doesn't tell us if at home Jesus was turning their water into wine or if he was multiplying the fish and the loaves. It doesn't tell us if he was doing anything like that. It doesn't tell us really anything at all other than we know this. Mary and Joseph hosted the Son of God in their house. The beginning of this year, I felt like the Lord gave me a prophetic word. And it was this, that he is raising up Simeons who will be filled with the Spirit to see Jesus and contend for his presence to come and bring change on earth. That he is raising up Annas who are daughters of, and sons of his presence. Those who have experienced his presence before that are willing to go and sit in a place absence of presence and pray and fast until his presence comes. And I believe he is raising up houses of Joseph that will make his presence their only priority, that will do whatever it takes to host him well, who will say, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that one thing will I seek. Church, I wonder if we can be a house of Joseph. If we can be a place that is content to host his presence well. A place that rearranges everything just to have him in our house. You know, I've been asked many times or different times throughout the time I've been the pastor here, what is the vision of the church, right? And I really don't have always a good answer for that other than to say this. My vision for this church is this, that we would host his presence well. That we would be a people that would come into this room with no other agenda than to just host the presence of God in our midst. That we would do whatever it takes to lay aside every other distraction, to lay aside every other hindrance so that we can honor his presence in this house well. And I'm telling you, church, if we can honor and host his presence well, everything else will be added unto us. I just want to host him. I just want to host him. I don't just want to host him in this house. I want to host him in my house. I want to host him in my living room. I don't want my kids just to experience the presence of God in this room, in this building. I want them to experience the presence of God when they wake up in the morning and come downstairs for breakfast. I want them to experience the presence of God when they lay their head down at night on their pillow. And the voice of God just begins speaking to them. That their dreams would be sweet that he would show them things. 
church, I just want to host him. I just want to host him. So as we move into this next year, let's recalibrate our focus. Let's recalibrate our attention and declare with David, there's one thing that I desire. And that one thing will I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to inquire in his tabernacle. We say yes to doing whatever it takes to host you well. We say yes to doing whatever it takes to host you well, Jesus. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more messages like this or information about our church, please visit harmonychurchfamily.org.